today on Race Capital, we are talking about getting the police out of our schools. We have been in the streets for over 50 days, demanding that the city defund the racist police and fund black futures. We know that our youth are the ones who will inherit the future and the world that we're building right now. Currently, many of our schools in Richmond and throughout Virginia use school resource officers and school security officers to police certain student populations. And these officers are paid by taxpayer dollars to arrest, criminalize, and introduce our children to the so-called criminal justice system. In the 2018-2019 academic year, there were over 100 arrests of children for simple assaults in the Richmond public school system. During this current academic year, there were about 50 arrests before the COVID-19 pandemic put a pause on business as usual for the Richmond school to prison pipeline. The little data that we do have access to speaks volumes, as does our own lived experience as black and brown students, graduates, and stakeholders who have seen and experienced the violent impact of the school to prison and school to deportation pipelines on our peers and on our youth. We don't need data to tell us that, but it does paint a larger picture of just how insidious and normalized sending our children to the school to prison pipeline is for our society. Today, we explore the abolition of policing in schools. What does it mean to move beyond policing and punitive discipline measures that send our children into the criminal justice system? Stay tuned. We will speak to Richmond Public School teacher and Richmond for All member Jessica Shim, Rise for Youth organizer Stephanie Younger, and Rise for Youth executive director Valerie Slater today on Race Capital. First up, we'll talk to Richmond Public School teacher and Richmond for All organizer, Jessica Shim. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on to the show, finally. Uh, Can you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, my name is Jessica Shim. Um, My pronouns are she and her. I identify as Asian, specifically Korean. Um, I'm an elementary school teacher in Richmond Public Schools. I've been a teacher for two and a half years Um, And I'm going into my third full year of teaching this fall. I am a rank and file member of the Richmond Education Association, which is the teachers union here. Y'all that are listening, Jessica uh, does mutual aid work, really um, outside of the classroom is doing work to support the community. Um, So we're really happy that you're a part of our community, Jess. Thanks. So today we're talking about getting cops out of schools. Something that has come up um, in these conversations, you know, in the streets and also outside the streets is uh, the educator's role in the school to prison pipeline. As a teacher, can you speak a little bit to this? Yeah, right. Um, I think that as um, teachers, we can contribute to the school to prison pipeline in a, in a variety of different ways, mainly because most, uh, most teachers 
um, have not experienced the school to prison pipeline. And in fact, many teachers haven't even seen, visibly seen the school to prison pipeline at work because of our segregated school system, right? A majority of teachers are white middle-class women. Um, while of course there are exceptions, the majority of teachers choose the work of teaching because they generally have had positive experiences in schools. Um, because the structure of public schools under capitalism works for them. It works for people who are, you know, like in line with the white norm. And, you know, they've never been arrested in school. They've never been suspended in school. They've not, never gotten in trouble for the way they dress or because of their hair in school. They've never had to navigate this school system that is constantly trying to push them out. Because of this, we label... Um, children that fight back against this white norm as quote-unquote too loud or quote-unquote too disruptive and put them in this category of like quote-unquote like broken children right and Dr. Bettina Love who is an abolitionist educator um, she calls this spirit murdering and many educators are complicit and involved in the in the spirit murdering of black and brown children even when we have good intentions because the structure of school itself is the school to prison pipeline. The structure of school under, under capitalism, even if it is a public school, because we are living in this unfortunate capitalist society, we um, just create the school to prison pipeline. Um, for example, like the dress codes, the emphasis on standardized testing, this boxed curriculum that doesn't give teachers or students autonomy to create our own curriculum, this punitive code of conducts, for example, suspensions, referrals, um, hierarchy in education, and of course, like police presence, all of those policies and programs contribute to the structure of school, which inevit inevitably result in the school to prison pipeline. Um, yeah, I find that, and especially if you think about racial capitalism right like um of course then would the school be like the perfect uh conduit for sending students off into the pipeline as mass incarceration has increased even looking forward if we are not operating under this harsh racial capitalist system could our schools then be conduits of learning again exactly like so this doesn't mean that teachers are excused from anti-racist work as individuals. We have so much work to do in terms of coming face to face with our racism and anti-blackness. Being an anti-racist teacher and fighting the school to prison pipeline, fighting for cops out of schools, those things means doing the work of getting the cops out of our own heads, right? Um, we have to incorporate anti-racist training and abolitionist teaching training in our teacher prep programs. We don't have any of that right now. We have to incorporate anti-racist training and abolitionist teaching training in our teacher prep programs because we don't have any of that right now. And we have to continue that work outside of school and in our community because schools are often seen as this building that is like separate from the community when, when in reality we are entrenched in, in the community that we live in. We have to fight against the idea that a racist teacher is better than no teacher. Or why are our two options either a racist teacher or a no teacher? Why is there a teacher shortage? Where are all the black and brown teachers? Because before Brown versus Board of Education, there were plenty of black and brown teachers and plenty of black and brown administrators that were in 
black schools and thriving. We have to get to the bottom of these choices and, and then we have to fight for better options, right? Like having a diverse classroom library is not breaking the school to prison pipeline. And telling kids to be kind to everyone despite the color of the skin, that's not breaking the school to prison pipeline. That is just trying to put these bandages on the systemic racism that is deep rooted in, in our lives. And it's not like something that you just take, you know, a professional development class for one time and you're like, okay, like I'm anti-racist. I check it off. That's not what it's about because you're, if you're doing those things and not doing the work of actively fighting the structure that allows these racist policies to seep into our public education system, then honestly, it's a little bit performative, right? And also, like, making sure that we are retaining black and brown teachers. Exactly. Um, If you haven't looked yet at the Black at RPS Instagram, you can see many instances of teachers saying that, you know, they are being pushed out of black and brown teachers saying, I am being pushed out of my school and I visibly see myself, people like me, being replaced with younger white teachers. And people are noticing, people are noticing these kinds of things. And they're clearly, you know, there's clearly no process to speak up about these things, which is why people are making an anonymous Instagram to speak up about these issues. And I think that it's frustrating when the administration says, okay, like we are going to have a town hall about these problems because the town hall is Black and RPS. Black and RPS, the Instagram is the outlet that people are using, that the grassroots people are using to speak up about these issues. Would those folks want to go to this open town hall and speak about their experiences? Who knows? Like probably not. And this goes back historically too, like the push out of um, Black and Brown teachers. Um, for example, after Brown versus Board of Education in Richmond, there was a movement called the Massive Resistance Movement, where white parents literally refused to send their kids to public schools because of integration. And they decided to create these public schools, and they decided to shut down schools, and they decided to move to the counties. White flight happened because of Brown versus Board of Education. And when there is no anti-racist training, and when there is no anti-racist work done in the community and within teachers, Brown versus Board of Education, like, doesn't even matter. Because white parents were refused to let Black administrators and Black teachers teach their kids, they were all being pushed out. Can you tell us what's going on in Richmond public schools around So what's happening right now is quite interesting. Back in the beginning of June, Kenya Gibson, who is the third district school board member, called for developing a plan to transition police out of RPS. She did this through a Medium article. Um, She pointed out that our budget for next year, and I'm quoting her, eliminated planned stipends for lead workers in restorative justice and trauma-informed care. Then there was this big effort to send public comments to the school board specifically about SROs and cops out of schools in the July 29th meeting. And they did not read comments during that meeting, despite having said that they were going to. People who sent in the comments, including me, received emails saying that our comments will not be read, sorry, the June 29th meeting, but that it'll be read in the July 9th meeting instead. But in the July 9th meeting, again, the comments were not read. None of the comments were read during that meeting. And I can't help but think that this is some kind of strategy used to um, prevent people from participating in the democratic process. Like, why weren't comments read during that meeting? And what happened to those comments? I still do not know what happened to those comments. (laughs) 
That's really concerning. I just want to highlight that for the listeners that people have written in to the school board about getting cops out of schools and we still have not heard those public comments. Yeah, that's really disturbing. Um, Currently, the administration, the RPS administration is conducting a 90-day review to look at the Richmond Public Schools relationship with the police department. And at Monday's school board meeting, the most recent one, Harry Hughes, who is the chief schools officer, gave an updated updated report, which included some information about arrests in schools. Um, There was nothing about suspensions or referrals or anything like that. It was just arrests. And when you look at the data that he presented, majority of arrests are from middle schools. And my first thought was, can you imagine being like 13 years old and getting arrested at school in front of your teachers and your friends? Clearly, there are many of these students that know that feeling. (laughs) And I'm wondering you know, if these arrests tell black and brown students like that they're welcome at school and that they belong at school. Clearly, it does not. The chief schools officer, when he presented this data, board members Pat Zapini and Felicia Cosby and Don Page raised many great questions about the data. And some of these questions included like, who initiates these arrests? Are they teachers? Are they cops? Are they admin? And how many of these students have IEPs, which are individualized education plans, How many arrests are happening on school grounds or how many of them are happening in after school activities? And why is it that there are so many arrests in some schools, but barely any, if not zero in other schools? And um, a lot of the arrests came from what is categorized as simple assault. And so like, what does simple assault mean, right? Like, what does that mean? Right. And these are meaningful questions. Like, that was the end of it. That was the meeting. They took the questions and they said, okay, like, we'll have some answers for you. And that was the end of that conversation. And so, you know, I'm really curious as to, you know, like the details of this data. And I'm also really curious as to like, you know, how are suspensions involved with SROs and how are, and SSOs, right, school security officers, and like, how are suspensions involved? And like the code of conduct, for example, like how, like, what is the role that school school security officers, SSOs, or SROs play in that? They're not technically SROs aren't supposed to, but like, do they? And if so, like, to what extent? You know, those are all really, I feel like, important questions to be raised. Ultimately, children are getting arrested in school. And that's the bottom line. The thought of arresting a child, it should be a big decision. And so the fact that the data is not available to know, are they getting arrested in an after-school activity or is it in school? And what is the cause of this? To find out that the school resource officers are funded through the city's budget. These officers are, you know, paid for by our our tax dollars um, is extremely concerning. You know, during the reopening conversation, it was, we don't have nurses. We don't have hand sanitizer. We don't have piping and this and that. Uh, Substitutes, you know. Substitutes. And we have money for uh, school resource officers. Um, and I heard you bring up the these differences between a school security officer and a school resource officer. Are you able to speak to that a little bit? Because I think that that gets lost in the conversation sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the main difference between a school resource officer, which is an SRO, and then a school security officer, which is an SSO, is that... SROs are employees of RPD, so the police department, and they're paid for by the Richmond Police Department. And SSOs are employees of RPS and are paid for by RPS. So technically, 
SROs are supposed to intervene when there has been a violation of law, like the cops do right now. And they're supposed and SSOs are supposed to intervene when students violate school policy. But they're really similar technically in the way that they're both under the punitive system and they're both agents of policing. The Virginia law says that SSOs are in charge of maintaining discipline, preventing crime, investigating violations of the policies of the school and detaining students violating the law or policies of the school. And so that's basically what a cop does, right? And I want to be clear that when I say like cops out of schools and when we're saying, we're talking about the conversation of cops out of schools, we don't just mean removing the physical presence of police who are paid by RPD out of schools. Like that's not what we mean, right? Like I think that what we're trying to get at is getting the presence of policing out of schools and the presence of punitive systems that do not work and only foster distrust and basically ruins our communities. Like we need to get those systems out of there. This can include like metal detectors in schools and suspensions. Those are all not physical police, but also act as a part of the policing model that contribute to the school to prison pipeline. Harry Hughes had said that the SROs involve themselves uh, when the law is broken and uh, the administration or SSOs alert the SRO when their presence is needed. So um, when we're thinking about this pipeline, we have teachers, we have administration, we have SSOs, and then the next level of policing is going to be SROs, um, just for the listeners so that y'all are keeping up with all of these um, players of policing in the schools. Once we remove cops from schools, what would you like to see that money spent on instead? There are a lot of things I would like to see the money spent on instead, honestly. Um, and that is going to require the defunding of the entire police department as opposed to just the SROs. I think that fundamentally building the community is really important in order to have good schools, quote unquote, good schools, right? So right now there are thousands of people getting evicted and I can't help but to think of students who are being evicted right now from their homes and they're about to go into this online virtual learning because of the global health pandemic that's going on and so it's like how are we expected to how are students expected to log on to a computer to a chromebook and complete these assignments when they don't have a home i don't really understand that i think that a lot of our resources can go into supporting families who are being evicted and to changing the policies around homes and evictions in general. I think that obviously we need more counselors. Actually, the state just cut counselors, the budget for counselors last year. Um, and so we, we need more counselors. We need more social workers, full-time nurses in every school. You know, I would really love for our bus drivers and our custodians and our cafeteria workers and lunch monitors to have like great health care and a great pay because they do some of the most important work in school and the system needs to recognize that. I hope that, you know, that some of that money could be also used to recruiting Black and Indigenous teachers who we are essentially just pushing out of the system <laughs> to little things. Like, I really wish there were healthy, healthy food options for students at school, you know, plant-based food options that kids, so that kids aren't eating pre-packaged cinnamon rolls every single morning when they come to school. Okay. I was actually thinking about um, the Marcus alert, right? So that's one of the demands 
that we have right now. And I was thinking like, imagine if we had something like the Marcus Alert at school and that if there was a, a student who was experiencing a crisis, we could call a professional who has experience, actual experience with people experiencing crises and they would come and help this kid out. And there was a Marcus Alert RPS version. And that's what I think if we were spending or thinking about our money differently, we could actually dream about this stuff. What is next? Yeah, um, so there's supposed to be two public meetings. The first one is going to be on August 10th, and the next one will be on August 24th, and those are both on Monday. So far, as of right now, we have not heard anyway on how to submit public comments or engage in the public hearing or anything. So I would really appreciate if um, the administration or somebody would let us know how we can participate in the democratic process. And I know that there's going to be a student-led panel on Thursday, and there will also be focus groups um, with RPS students. Um, Actually, when they were presenting on this on Monday, board member Cosby pointed out that the focus group should have students from MLK as they are the most impacted by these arrests. And I also want to add on and say that um, I think it's really crucial that the students who are most impacted by SROs in the community should be represented in these focus groups and panels. And Yeah, so y'all heard it here first. August 10th and August 24th are the public hearing dates. There's also a student-led panel happening this Thursday, which is tomorrow. Um, and there will also be focus groups. Um, and yeah, we will be looking forward to how the public can engage because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are parents um, or RPS stakeholders. Um, so follow us and we will keep you updated on that. Uh, Jessica, is there anywhere else that folks should follow um, to keep up with this education stuff? Richmond for All has a public education working group that is very involved in all this um, information. And then there's also the REA, which is the Richmond Education Association, which is the teachers union. So back when um, we were talking about reopening schools, we were able to successfully push the union to, to release a public statement about um, virtual learning. And so we're hoping that the union will stand in solidarity with us and um, launch some kind of campaign for safer schools or something like that. Yes, we would love to see it. And then of course, we cannot let you get off the show, Jessica, without our what's your privilege segment. What is your privilege and how do you use it to dismantle white supremacy? Oh, that's a great question. I have many different privileges. I think that um, my, I have able-bodied privilege. Um, I have my non-Black privilege. Often Asian people are seen as um, the model minority. And this myth is about um, pitting, pitting essentially Asian people against Black and Brown, even though very complicated, but even though a lot of Asian folks are actually have darker skin. Like there are a lot of Asian folks who have darker skin and yet we are, you know, still in this era of, you know, model minority. A lot of Eastern Asians are pitted against black and brown folks um, and are used as the model minority example. And that can bring on a lot of privileges. Um, I have the privilege, privilege of being educated. I went through college and I went to grad school. And I think that Right. So I'm using these privileges to dismantle, to work to dismantle white supremacy by um, 
I have a lot of different privileges. Um, some of them being that I'm able-bodied and um, I am what the world sees as neurotypical. And um, being Korean, um, we a lot of Eastern Eastern Asians are um, lifted up using the lifted up by white people using the model minority myth and that comes with a vast array of privileges um and i think that i use these privileges to try to break the model minority myth and break that stereotype that you know asians are succumbing to the white supremacist agenda and to do this um i try to have in an individual level, I try to have a lot of conversations with the people around me about privilege and power and how that works. And I try to incorporate that into um, my teaching at school and outside of school and outside of my individual individual life. I try to um, show up to support the people who are leading this fight in the revolution. Next, we'll speak to Stephanie Younger, Rise for Youth organizer. Welcome, Stephanie Younger, to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with Rise for Youth? Yeah. So since I was 15 years old, I've been working with Rise for Youth, and we are a nonpartisan campaign dedicated to dismantling the youth prison model and advocating for alternatives to youth imprisonment, as well as challenge racial injustice in Virginia. That's awesome. Yeah. So y'all are really out here trying to get rid of youth prisons um, and finding alternatives. That's pretty, pretty big work. Virginia has quite a bit of institutions and different places where we hold youth. So the fact that you've been doing that work since you were 15, pretty remarkable. Thank you. So today on the show, we're talking about getting policing out of schools. Can you talk to us a little bit about how this relates to your work with getting Mm -hmm. youth prisons out of Virginia? Yeah, so getting police out of schools is very, it's relative to um, the work of Rise for Youth because it's usually the police in schools that that lead Black youth into the school-to-prison pipeline. It's the zero-tolerance policies, it's, it's the arrests that people made, it's the way teachers see it's the way teachers see black youth and you know like when I talk about um, cops out of schools or when I talk about racism at the hands of teachers I usually speak from personal experience yes I am a product of Chesterfield County public schools and so I understand what you mean when you say that teachers also serve as cops and administrators Mm -hmm. as well in the schools at the beginning of that pipeline and Sometimes it's just their subjective view of us or whoever, people that look like us, that really can determine our future. This is where I want to kind of dig in a little bit. You know, you're a Black youth organizer. You've been organizing since you were a teenager, a young teenager. When we talk about abolition, what does that mean to you? Well, I first learned about abolition in 2017. And, you know, that's where I went to an event. I actually volunteered at an event of Af- at Africana Independent Film Festival where Angela Davis was. And I got to meet her in person, which was pretty cool. And I also learned about abolition feminism. Yeah. And what that means is, like, to me, it means that, like, from her definition, it means that it's like feminism that challenges, combats how the prison industrial complex oppresses women, but especially, like, women of color and Black women, even more specifically. To you, do you feel like that that speaks to how you see abolition and feminism? 
as yeah. connected to the prison industrial complex? Yeah. Although I do identify more with like the womanist movement because because from what I've seen the from my experiences personally because of the mainstream feminist movements like failures and apathy towards prison abolition. One of my favorite quotes that I learned was like uh what was it? It was like pink is to lavender as do you know it's this one? womanist womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. Yes, yes. Yeah, I have my sign right there. Oh you know, my god. So when you talk to adults and other folks about like mm-hmm. this really abolition and the prison industrial complex and th- these things, do you find that it's hard to for them to grasp the idea of say prison youth prisons ending in Virginia? Mm. Does it seem like a difficult conversation sometimes? It absolutely is sometimes. I mean, while I haven't really like spoke directly to adults you know, who have a conflict and opinion about defunding the police and abolishing the police and defunding and abolishing youth prisons as well. I do imagine that it would be a difficult conversation to have as someone who has been spoken down to about my work, like like getting unsolicited advice about what I do. Like even from strangers in public, like I get off the uh, get off like the the megaphone or a microphone from speaking and like they're like, oh, you need to speak up. I can't hear you. But yeah. And I did say after one thing I organized that, that I, that I do, that I agree that I need to work on projecting my voice, but, but that doesn't make my voice any less worthy uh, or deserving of being heard. And yeah, so going back to the prison and abolishing prisons, the work needs to be intergenerational is what my opinion is on that. And being intergenerational means like guiding the, this generation to an extent, but also making sure and being intentional that we're the leaders in this movement. My mom often uses this phrase called passing the baton to the next generation. And, you know, what I love about her is that she, um, that she really like understands the importance of letting people of this generation lead their own movements with the guidance and the support of adults. And uh, yeah, it's definitely hard. Because because I've seen adults speak really poorly of Black youth, like even Black adults speak poorly of Black youth in this movement. I remember one time Black woman said, oh, a lot of the Black youth I work with only care about being rappers. They, they don't care about justice. Like someone actually said that. And, and I'm like, wait, but what about my comrades who have been like, well, what does that say to me and my comrades who are leading the fight for Black lives on the front lines of this movement. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's about us also policing Black youth and not allowing folks to lead. And so we've talked about this a bit on our show about what it looks like to marginalize Black voices in the streets and mm-hmm. take mics and, you know, yeah. do that work. But it's also something that is ingrained in us to police each other. And so this constant, we've been saying like to abolish the cop in our heads. And I think that Mm -hmm. that is a call for us as youth, for also folks that are a bit older that are in this movement or maybe adjacent to it, that it may be time to pass the baton and also to listen. (laughs) Yeah. And and I think this point about the, the loudest voice is not always the right voice. 
is so powerful to think that, you know, we don't always have to listen to the first person that grabs that megaphone or the loudest Mm -hmm. voice that's in the crowd. And we don't have to demand that voices that aren't as loud speak up. Just listen to what's being said. Yeah. So I find that to be just really powerful too, Steph. Thank you. And so the last question I have for you, we ask all of our guests, is our section, what's your privilege? Uh-huh. And so we ask, what's your privilege and how do you use it to dismantle systems of white supremacy? Mm. Yeah, so... I often remind myself that I am, I'm black, definitely black, but at the same time, I'm also a light skinned black woman. And, you know, like I also am cis, heterosexual, not disabled and middle-class. So what I'd like to see um, other black people do, like other black women who are light skinned or cis um, or heterosexual and have the privileges that I do. um, I like to see them, stop picking and choosing which black lives are worthy of liberation. Yeah, so I have struggled in the past with standing with the communities that I'm not a part of, but also letting them lead their own movements. And yeah, so especially as like a black cis woman, I also have to remind myself that I must be giving the same solidarity that I expect from white women or black men. I should be giving that same solidarity to black trans women and black non-binary folks. And the way that that we as light-skinned Black women gaslight dark-skinned Black women conversations about colorism. Like I often hear like, oh, we're all Black. Yes, that, that's true, that we all are harmed by white supremacy. Colorism is a form of white supremacy. And many of us benefit from that. And the way we say, oh, we're all Black. I used to say this too. The way we say that we gaslight dark-skinned Black women it reminds me of white feminists who say we're all women um like when when black women as a whole talk about racism in the feminist movement so we can't pick and choose which black lives are deserving of liberation and i'm working on holding other black women accountable to do the same and showing up to marches that don't directly affect me and going to these events these webinars and supporting my comrades yes I really mm-hmm. identify with, with that, pushing myself to go into events that mm-hmm. don't always affect me and yeah. finding like interest and joy and that solidarity. Mm-hmm. So I'm so here for that. So I grew up, I'm also middle class and I grew up in Henrico County, um, Virginia. I lived on the West End and I was almost always the only black kid in the neighborhood, only gone to like white, predominantly white schools where there are like only three or five other black kids there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was me up until from kindergarten or pre-K up until uh, middle school, like the, like the end of sixth grade. And then from seventh to 12th grade, I was homeschooled. And yeah, so like what I would say to black people who have those privileges is to let people like to um, let people who are affected by by the lack of resources and who are affected are harmed by like the segregation of the schools in Henrico County, like in central Virginia, to mm-hmm. let people who are the most marginalized lead their own movements. So that means putting down the microphone and passing it to someone else. Recently, a lot of people have been asking me if I've gone to RPS and I'm like, no, no, I haven't. And 
you know, I'd usually pass that on to a comrade who went there. Because it's really it, just that simple, yeah, right? It's that simple, like, yeah. Yeah, because I know exactly how I feel when I see white people who treat me like shit to go to this protest or to be, to protest or to post during Blackout Tuesday and say that they're anti-racist. <laughs> so, so I shouldn't really be doing the same to, to any Black person who's more marginalized than I am because that is the equivalent of the white liberal who, who does the same to Black folks, essentially. Yeah, and our, our job is to amplify, if we're actually mm-hmm. using that term, right? Like you were saying, like mm-hmm. amplify Black voices, like, let's actually do that and pass the mic mm-hmm. to those folks yeah. um, who have experiences. And I think that's so powerful that you see that already as a youth organizer, that that's Thank your you. job. Um, and it's mm-hmm. not going to always be speaking for people, which, right. like you're saying, that is the master's tools. We're mm-hmm. trying to dismantle this stuff. <laughs> right. And there's, like, like I've heard um, a lot of things like Voice for the Voiceless, which is, like, literally the bane of my existence. and there shouldn't have to be a voice for the voices because everyone has a voice and everyone uses their voice in their own way and they're all deserving of being uplifted. Finally, we will speak to the Rise for Youth Executive Director, Valerie Slater. Valerie, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for coming back on. You know what? Thank you for having me. It is always a pleasure to share with the listening audience because you're doing such powerful work and the folks who are really trying to move and shake in Virginia are listening in. Yes. So we're, we're talking today on the show about getting cops out of schools, this idea of moving beyond policing in our education systems here in Virginia. How does mm-hmm. getting cops out of schools advance the Rise for Youth mission to close youth prisons? So first of all, RISE, it stands for Reinvest in Supportive Environments. And we recognize that school, it's supposed to be this place where children are going to develop their young minds, to dream larger than you know, what, what they had previously thought possible. They are supposed to, the world is supposed to be opening up to them in school. Instead, we have placed police officers there. We have placed restricting forces in this place that should be freeing our children's minds. So when we get cops out of schools, we are going to allow that environment to be its to reach its fullest potential, what it was created for, to build and to strengthen and to develop young minds. Police officers have absolutely no part in that process. And we are always looking to reinvest in supportive environments. If that's an environment that should be supportive, we need to reinvest all of the money that we are now allowing officers to have for the, even if it's extracurricular activities, I don't care what money is being uh, used by police officers in our schools, all of that money needs to be reinvested into the children, into the programs for the children, into the support staff for the children within the schoolhouse. That's how it will reinforce the RISE vision. It will be reinvesting every dollar into that environment that ought to be supporting our children. Yes, and making them actually safe and secure. Exactly. 
So we've been talking a bit about this word abolition, uh, both in the streets, at our teach-ins, and also on the airwaves as well. How do you feel that the mission of Rise for Youth is focused on abolition? So we believe first and foremost, prisons don't work for children. They don't work at all, but especially for children. The moment you decide to cage a child, you have caged that child's mind. And in order to really allow a child to even bounce back from a mistake, they have got to be placed in an environment that is conducive to learning, that is conducive to mistake making and recovering from mistakes. Prison is not a place where that can happen. We must close every prison. Um, You know, it's really an interesting thing. Whenever I say, you know, rise for youth, we believe that prison is no place for children. I always pause because folks, they're shaken by that statement. The very idea that we are considering and that we are doing in America, that we are incarcerating, imprisoning children, it, it, it always causes folks to kind of just kind of stop and, and think, right? What, what, what have we become? that locking up children is how we are, are saying that we are helping them to come back from some of their mistakes. And so abolition means to get rid of, to dismantle, to stop doing something that isn't working. And that is what Rise for Youth stands for. We know that prison doesn't work for children. And so we are advocating always that communities receive every dollar that is earmarked for rehabilitation because we recognize that the communities where children are coming from are often so deprived of every resource that creates a thriving and healthy environment. As soon as we allow all the resources needed to create healthy communities, we will begin to see the product of a healthy community. So when you really want to stop seeing children make some of the mistakes that they are making right now, when you really want to see that in, then you will do what's necessary to create an environment that's conducive to healthy growth and development. Yes, and I feel that this is so important for folks that hear us out in the streets saying to get cops out of schools, see that the school board is having these conversations to understand that there are organizations out there whose missions are to support children and who have created infrastructure and framework to, to start to think through what that will look like once we do go forward with this abolition of prisons and police and, and schools. I am so grateful that we have this opportunity to have the conversation about exactly that. You know, I mean, there are several communities that we could go to in Virginia that are receiving all of the resources necessary and their children it's not that they don't make mistakes it's just that the police aren't who you call when they make the mistakes it's just that the court system isn't where those children end up when they make mistakes and ultimately prison is not where those children end up well when is it that we are going to be able to value when is it when we are going to begin valuing every child in Virginia. We are not going to base our value on a zip code. We aren't going to base value on a skin color. We aren't going to base value on the, uh, the economic output 
of a particular community. But we're just going to recognize that every child is inherently valuable and every potential that lies within that child ought to have the opportunity to realize its full manifestation in the world because our world will be exponentially better when we allow every child to demonstrate and to display their greatness. And so, yeah, it's all about creating those opportunities and, and the opportunity, it comes from resource and we have plenty. Virginia is what, the eighth wealthiest state in our nation. When we look at the amount of money that is being made and spent and exchanged in this state, we're eight wealthiest. Why is it that we aren't able to uh, resource every community appropriately? Why is it that schools are struggling in some communities to just have the basic needs for those children? Why is that? Why do we have food deserts? Why do we have housing insecurity? Why is it that we have literal, we've got poverty zones in, in, in our state? How is that possible when we have so much economic wealth? It's, it's shame on us for and allowing that to be. And to, to answer all of those issues with policing of those who, who are at the most at the forefront of receiving mm -hmm. that violence um, and especially our right. children and this question that you're asking of why some students are disciplined and policed more are differently or why some schools in Richmond have police officers and some don't uh, came up uh, Monday night at school board where folks were beginning to ask why is it that MLK and Huguenot have these high rates of arrest and, you know, other schools like Benford don't even have a SRO or an officer at the school. And so I just, I urge the school board, people who are advocating for youth to continue to ask this question of why we have these people in our schools and what are they doing? Are they sending middle schoolers and folks younger than that into prisons? Because it's, it doesn't end once the arrest stops. These students are actually going through a cycle of a pipeline of the school to prison pipeline. And so although the role of prisons is to remove people from our society so that we don't see them, I think it's incredibly important. And you're kind of calling us to action to see these children, to remember them and to advocate for them before they go away into these, these centers where we, you know, we render them as not part of our society anymore. And why are we okay with doing that to children? The question that continues to come up for me from this conversation. That's exactly right. And, you know, it is a sad thing that we have literally allowed a select few to dictate how we are going to treat so many children, that we have allowed folks with an excess of resource to allow them to just basically say, well, you know, if it isn't for ours, then it isn't, it isn't worth distributing. If it isn't for ours, then it just doesn't matter. Those kids, it's okay if these things happen to those children. Well, all children are our children. We are Virginians, and we cannot allow not one child's life to be disvalued or to be disregarded. Not on Rise's Watch. Amen. And not on ours either, because we have to remember, and I think uh, in the streets, we've been doing a lot of reimagining of our society. And we have to think about 
the impact of removing a child at so young from our community and what that is actually doing to all of us. And so I really just echo that, that it's all of us that need to be to be protecting our children. And if this is what we'll do to kids, we, we see what happens to adults as well. That's right. Can you speak to leading as a Black cis woman in this movement for prison abolition and the maneuvers that we have to do in this movement to make it work? You know, as a woman, as a Black woman, you know, oftentimes we are pushed to a bottom of a power structure, right? When we start talking about the way power is uh, recognized in our society, at the very top is that white male, right? And then, you know, some would argue then comes all other males. But I believe that this whole Karen movement is letting us know that white women really do come second. And then we can um, rank men of color. But then at that very bottom is black women. And so, number one, we're having to stand up and our voices are going to have to be powerful. We're going to have to be on point. But when I say powerful, we have to be sure not to be too forceful because then, you know, we'll be perceived as being aggressive. And, you know, we can't be too uh, too forceful because, you know, folks are always judging and manipulating our words and, you know, viewing us in light. Uh, as it relates to the stereotypes that have been built around and about us, and all in an attempt to keep our voices silent, to keep us relegated to a back room, relegated to irrelevance. I am I am blessed to work with and to lead an organization with powerful voices of young people, of uh, of of men and of women who are all about the work. They aren't looking at me to determine whether or not I am a black or a white or any other color individual. They are looking at me and saying, you know what? You are leading this work with the most centered in the challenges and in the issues that we are facing because it is indeed their lived experiences. And you cannot silence that. You cannot silence truth. It continues to speak. It speaks loudly. And I'm honored to lead an organization that is allowing me to realize my dream. My dream is to make sure that every space that impacts the youth is listening to the voices of those young people as they are transitioning and changing and reforming and dismantling to make sure that they are indeed supportive environments all. So it's an honor to lead this organization and an honor to lead in such a way that I get to make room for the next generation and the right now leaders. So, yeah. Yes trying to have an intergenerational movement for um, abolitions of prisons and policing, the, the tension of yeah. the intergenerational movement. So yeah, I think it's really powerful to hear you talk about taking leadership from youth and also that being an aspect of your leadership. Can you talk about what mm -hmm. is your privilege and how you uh, use it to dismantle white supremacy? My privilege is I've had the opportunity to go to undergraduate school and get a bachelor's degree and then on to law school. And I'm a practicing attorney now. And so I'm going to tell you what, education is privilege. It affords me the opportunity to know the ins and outs of particular uh, systems in ways that uh, without the education that I have, I might not know. 
you know, I had the opportunity as the head of an organization to be in spaces that are not always open to others. But you know, what I have learned is that any space I'm in, I can absolutely bring someone with me. And then also in some spaces that I'm in, I'm able to get up and allow someone else to have my seat. Just because I've been allowed in doesn't mean I have to be the voice in that space. What I really get to do is be the shoulders that someone else can stand on. I can be the conduit through which someone else finds access to those things and those places that they belong in. So that's my privilege in how I use it. Yes, yes. And that's just, um, that speaks so strongly to what Stephanie was saying to this past the mic. It's not always speaking for, but literally making space for other folks to that are most impacted. So thank you so much, Valerie. This was really good. Um, what I'm really excited about is all of that frontline work that you are doing out in the street, you know, because I, I keep saying it takes all of us, right? We've got to have folks who are doing the agitation because the agitation creates the atmosphere where true change can happen. But yes. while that agitation is happening, we've got to have strategists who are taking that agitation, recognizing what are the people crying for, and who are able to then see the path to get that thing. And then we've got to have the folks who are able to draft legislation, that are writing legislation that is reflective of those voices. But then we've got to have those who are able to go into those spaces with legislators so that they are able to talk to them and lobby them and make sure that they are hearing and understanding what laws, what must be passed. But see, then it comes back full circle, right? Because those same folks who are out in the street and agitating, they are watching and they are demanding. That's right. We said it first and the legislators drafted it. And then they and then those folks are in there talking about it and they are reflecting what we said. So you better do it because we are also the voters and we'll get you out if you don't do what exactly. we said. Um, with the little ones. Oh, my goodness. Thanks, Julia. And you have an amazing day. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. It is time to move beyond policing in our schools and our education system. Thank you so much for listening to Race Capital here on WRIR. And please be sure to subscribe on your favorite online platform. Visit our website at www.racecapital.com and check us out next week here at 10 a.m. Until then, we hope to see you in the streets. Stay safe and take care of yourselves.